First things first. Wiggle your big toe. Hard part's over. Now, let's get these other piggies wiggling. And welcome to The Letterbox Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterbox, the social network for people who love watching movies. Each episode, your hosts, Slim and Gemma, that's me, are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their four favourite films. As you listen along, we have links in the episode notes, so there is no excuse not to add these films to your watch lists. We also have a brand new sister podcast, Weekend Watchlist, and that comes out weekly on Thursdays. Weekend Watchlist does exactly what it says on the box. It looks at new releases in cinemas, on demand, and streaming from the perspective of your beloved Letterboxd community. Mm. Well said. This week's guest is closing in on 100,000 Letterbox followers. Let that sink in. <laughs> she is a Los Angeles-based film columnist and screenwriter with a weekly column in the Willamette Week. And she is a regular Q&A host for Kinema. You know her as Brat. We know her as the new co-host of Weekend Watchlist. What? Please welcome Mia Vicino to the Letterbox show and to the Letterbox pod family. Mia, welcome. Hello, I am simply thrilled to be here. <laughs> it's been two seasons in the making, this moment. Yeah, two seasons. So we had you uh, on in the first season with Demi at Ajui Bay, I think, to talk about some movie things. <laughs> then we then we, <laughs> then we, had you on again, and here you are. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Last time, yeah, I got to come on with Demi, one of my besties, and lest we forget Adam Brody himself... What? That's right. I was watching one of your faves this week and went, ah, the penny dropped. <laughs> the penny mm -hmm. dropped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> your four faves, you called out one smiley face with Adam Brody as a, uh, I don't even know how to describe Adam Brody. And we'll get to that later. But <laughs> Mikey and Nikki. Oh, yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> mistake, <laughs> we'll get into a, a it. Handsome mistake. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Mikey and Nikki, Down with Love, Smiley Face, and Kill Bill Volume 1 are your four Oof. faves. So, quite a grouping that we'll get into in this episode. Before, Mia, before we dive in to the movies, I just want to say there's a lot of argy bargy about like so called joke reviews versus ooh, serious reviews on Letterboxd. And we're, we're here for all of the reviews, but you tend to attract a lot of heat. I want to read uh, a bit. Yep. From, <laughs> I want to read yeah. a bit from a Medium post entitled In Defense of Mia Vicino, in which a nice chap named Charles a few months ago wrote, like, and completely unrelated to, to, to you. You didn't know about this until today, did you? Yeah. So I think... I want to say that I think I remember getting tagged in it and I saw the headline. It was like in defense of Mia Vicino or something. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm so sensitive. <laughs> and I was too, I was just too, I just get so sensitive and I knew I would be too sensitive to read it. Okay. Well, Gemma's going to read the whole thing right now the to you. Thing. It's to good you. to face your fears. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Are you ready? Take a deep breath. This is not okay. the letterbox show. This is actually your therapy. Haha. -ha, we tricked you. Uh, yeah. Charles, <laughs> Charles writes, the people that claim to care about great movies don't anymore. I mean, it's a big 
call Charles. But anyway, don't anymore. Not really. Because if they did, they would see the extraordinary value in someone as funny and accessible as Mia Vicino, reviewing movies that most people likely would never have seen were it not for her reviews. Thank you, Mia. And thank you, anyone else who writes a joke review of every Bergman movie ever. You are the reason why movies even have a chance. Thoughts on that? That is so nice. Again, like I, I didn't, I was not able to read the piece due to sensitivity, but um, I should not have been afraid. That was very, very nice. I really appreciate that. Um, I mean, yeah, I started out doing shorter reviews because nobody was watching me and I was like a chronically stoned 19-year-old college student. <laughs> like I was, <laughs> I was truly like just having fun. And then, you know, like once I started getting more eyes on me, I was like, this actually could be kind of a cool opportunity to spotlight films that don't get a lot of love or just, you know, that, that flew under the radar, especially those made by women and marginalized people. So that's when I kind of started shifting. And like, it, it's mm. really fun for me to seek out these hidden gems and uh, to write about them because it's cool when they get an audience, man. Getting your movie into theaters is hard. <laughs> um, harder than anyone knows, right? And then even once you do, there's no guarantee that, you know, like the studios will give it the proper treatment. And, mm. and through Letterboxd, that's how people rediscover these films. And to have a small part in that is uh, very, very special. I also want to say that, uh, you know, people who perceive me as somebody who only is writing one-liners about popular movies, um, they must not be watching a lot of films because I do actually write a lot of detailed and thoughtful reviews. I mean, uh, check out Smithereens, Wanda, House of Tolerance, The Green Ray, Smooth Talk, you know, like I'm out here. I am out here. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm here to have fun. It's a fun way to share what I'm personally watching and to find cool new films. So pay me if you want long reviews, haters. <laughs> Thank you. That is my piece. Thank you. Is there an applause <laughs> button there? And also like a ka-ching. Ooh. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit last season about, I think maybe with Karsten too, about, you know, Karsten has this giant audience and we were asking, you know, does that impact what you write about a movie because if I had like I have a handful of friends on Letterboxd and it's really fun for us to make fun of each other in the comments and like each other's reviews if I had a hundred thousand followers on Letterboxd I'd be scared shitless yes. of writing something and like mm. maybe I have a good jokey review that I would post about like a Steven Seagal movie but then I'd be like ugh mm. you know these dweebs are gonna comment someone's gonna <laughs> write about me on Reddit yep. saying how do I how do I get a hundred thousand followers <laughs> So I don't know. I don't know how you do it, to be honest. I'd be pretty, I'd be pretty nervous. Like, is it a case of like heavy, heavy as the head or do you love it? It's a mixture of both because as I've mentioned 20,000 times, I'm so sensitive. Uh, but, you know, you find ways to cope. Like I don't check my notifications at all. I haven't checked them in years mm. because it's, it's just so overwhelming and scary. And I'm like, I don't need to see a comment from somebody who re who commented on my review from 2015, who's like so mad. It's like, I am a different person now. I don't need to see this. It's going to wreck my whole day for no reason. Right. <laughs> like logically, there's no reason for it to upset me. But here I am. It's a mixture of positive and negative, but overall, very positive. <laughs> and that's why when I discovered Charles's Medium post, today. I can't believe I hadn't seen it. I've got like a Google alert on for Letterboxd and it uh, never came through. And uh, I was reading it. And I was like, that's 
I wake up every day thinking exactly that about Letterboxd, is we are here so that people who love movies can find more movies to love whenever those movies are from and whoever they're made by. And what's the harm in loving the movies that you love? There there was, uh, and we can cut this out too, but there was, I think, a moment where we were talking about how there was like some blowback on, you know, shorter, witty reviews. And it just so happened that much of the blowback was the reviewer was a female. And I think, Gemma, even you pointed out about how... Interesting how <laughs> that works, huh? <laughs> about how... Uh, your perception of how, you know, maybe most women are more comfortable sharing those types of thoughts on movies and how most people aren't open to that perception of that comfortability. Do you remember that comment that you made? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, as we speak, it's International Women's Day and uh, you're talking about cutting this bit out. Oh. <laughs> <Staying> in. <laughs> <laughs> But you have to bleep me, <laughs> swearing. <laughs> and second of all, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like I've said this a million times. No, it's not. It's my equivalent of, you know, I'm sensitive. I say this all the time. It doesn't matter if a woman writes 10 words or 10,000 words on the internet. It's She's taking the same risk every time in terms of whether reply guys are going to just come on back with all of their reckons. And so... I'm on board with the so-called joke reviews. And, you know, I mean, I write one-line reviews myself, including of one of your favorites, Smiley Face, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I get really proud when I see a, a beautiful, thoughtful, long take. And I really love members like Julie and Naughty and and Lucy and Lise across Letterboxd who have been for a decade now like taking the time to actually dig deeply into into why they love the films they love. I also 100% get why a lot of people just won't write more than they do. But I also, I do also get why, um, I don't know, film lovers and maybe even studios especially would go on a film page and if the first five reviews are just all one-line jokes, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, actually, is there someone here talking about the film? So there is, in, in terms of letterbox. Um, public facing pages, a measure of curating that we do do. So all the people who get really angry and rageful and think that people are writing one-liners just for likes and just for popularity can just, I don't know, have a cup of tea. There might even be a six pack of- Smoke some pot, you guys. <laughs> Straight up, like yeah. chill out. Look at this jokey review. I just went onto the Batman page. This, this review is 81 likes- one sentence, long ass movie with not enough ass. Oh, brilliant. This is, from, brilliant. this is from Gemma G. Crew on Letterboxd. I don't know her. I must follow her. I don't know her. <laughs> I'm sick of these reviews. Get rid of them. Oh. It's like, they're just, uh, it's just fun and harmless. It, it's just like, <laughs> again, we're here to have fun. Uh, it's just you can movies, you guys. Yeah, God. come on. Speaking of fun, your first film is very related to your letterbox bio, which I have to read in full. Uh, in the midst of a torrid love affair with both the ghost of John Cassavetes and the hot rat from Flushed Away. Yes, that is 100% true. You can look it up. Um, it's in the textbooks. It's in the history books. Yes, I, I am currently involved. 
with both of them. <laughs> so we'll get into John Cassavetes with your first pick, Mikey and Nikki. This is from 1976 from Elaine May. This is a 4.0 average on Letterboxd and 545 people are also fans. And the synopsis in Philadelphia, John Cassavetes plays Nikki, small-time bookie who stole mob money. Nikki is in hiding and he begs a childhood friend played by Columbo himself, Peter Falk, to help him evade Ned Beatty, the hitman who's on his trail. Where were you the first time you saw Mikey and Nikki? Do you remember? Yes, actually, it was um, through uh, the Criterion channel after, um, you may remember, Filmstruck, R.I.P. Mm. That was a great mm-hmm. loss. And then uh, Criterion swooped in, saved the day. Um, so right before they fully launched, they were like teasing us with like one movie a week that you could <sighs> you could check out. And um, Mikey and Nikki was the very first one. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very proud. Wow. Um, but I hadn't seen it yet. I didn't know what this was. I was just intrigued that it was a gangster film directed by Elaine May, a woman. <laughs> oh. Wait, what? Someone um, lit her behind what? a camera? Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, so that intrigued me. Um, and I knew John Cassavetes as being the hot husband from Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> I was like, that's the hot evil guy. Yeah. And then I fell in love with this movie. It was crazy. It was like immediate. I was like, how have I never seen this before? And there is an answer as to why I hadn't seen it before, which we can get into. But um, yeah, that was the first time. Changed my life. I think I've seen it seven or eight times since oh, 2019. I, I know I... And is that, are those like solo sit down, I, I need a comfort watch, I'm going to watch Mikey and Nikki, or is that, oh, some friends have come over who have never seen it, I'm going to make them watch it? It is a mix of that. Um, in the beginning, it was just me watching it alone a bunch of times, just trying to absorb all of it. And I would, you know, I'd discover something new every time. It was exciting. And then I started trying to show friends this movie, like for my birthday, it just happened to be playing at a theater um, in Portland when I was living there. So I was like, ooh, I'm going to make all my friends go see Mikey and Nikki for my birthday. <laughs> and I did. And then nobody liked it. <laughs> oh my God, it was humiliating. <laughs> like nobody liked it. They were like, that's what you wanted to do? Like that was depressing. Are you kidding? That didn't deter me. I continued to show this movie to people uh, to varying degrees of success. Um, I'd say, I'd say like, 75% really don't like it, but then the 25% love it. So mm. not a great hit rate, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never, this has been on my watch list forever. And, you know, this is why I like Letterboxd joke reviews. Branson Reese writes on Letterboxd, this is Elaine May catching you watching The Godfather and forcing you to smoke the whole pack. At which point I'm like, I, okay, I got to see this. It's one of Mia's favorites. Branson's saying this about, I'm going to go and smoke the whole pack. Smoke the whole pack. Um, What a film. It was just like, don't we all just know that one toxic friend in our lives? And how did she, against the backdrop of gangsters, just uh, uh, distill that experience of that toxic friend down into this one mad manic film? Yes, I think it's just one of the most compelling character studies Ever. <laughs> I mean, you just get, you you understand so much about both Mikey and Nikki and the information is meted out so ingeniously. 
um, just like the way you discover more and more about them just by being on this journey and one of it's just one night it's also just one night in their lives it's crazy yeah she's a genius it's genius (laughs) i was gonna say you mentioned we all have that toxic friend maybe we are that toxic friend Gemma. oh that's the scary (laughs) part about watching that's scary (laughs) this felt like i thought incorrectly i was like man this is such a john cassavetta's movie you know like let the cameras roll and just see what the hell happens and then to my surprise he didn't direct it. Elaine May directed it. And I was like, what? WTF? And so I went down this rabbit hole of the production of this film, which you alluded to, Mia. Holy moly. Bring this- it on. I want to know everything. Elaine has gone through the ringer when she has directed films. Ishtar. Yeah. Uh, Ishtar. Later, <laughs> later maybe, maybe people recognize that movie title, but this movie went over like 3X over budget. She would, there's a couple anecdotes in the Wikipedia that I loved where she would just let the cameras roll even when the actors weren't even on set. And then I think like an assistant director came on set and yelled cut and she freaked out. (laughs) She's like, the director was like, they're not even here. And then she's like, well, they're going to come back. And (laughs) I just thought that was amazing. And she lost final edit to the movie. She hid reels from the studio. And eventually today, now we have... The final, the final, her cut of the film, I believe. Yes, it took a long way to get there too. Like, you know, the the studios kind of sabotaged its release. Um, you know, like it really did not get proper exhibition at all, truly. Like it made no money. Um, we didn't even get a good edit of it until I want to say like the MoMA restored it around 89, I believe, um, which is, you know, like John Cassavetes is, dead by then (laughs) like we it took Mm -hmm. so long for us to get a workable print of the movie because again like the version that came out was not her vision it was just butchered right so yeah that was kind of what i was alluding to um the rediscovery of films is so exciting i also want to say like when i first was logging this movie obsessively a couple years ago um the star rating was was lower than 4.0 i think it was something Mm. like it was between 3.7 or 8 or something. And just like over the years, it's gone up and it's gotten like so many more views because um, Criterion made it available. Um, you know, they have their, it's in the Criterion collection. Um, you can actually watch it now. You could not watch it uh, before. So yeah, since 2019, I've just been so excited to see the love for it grow because it so deserves it. The filmmaking feels so invigorating to me. I didn't love the movie, Safe Space, but I loved and respected the way it was made. Even if this was John Cassavetes, I'd be like, damn, I respect the hell out of this. But then to find out it's Elaine May in in the mid-70s, I was almost like thinking to myself, like, how did this happen? How did she get the pull to shoot like this? Like, I would probably watch a documentary just on the filming of this and the fallout. And then, you know, Elaine May's career, because... I started going down her career. I was like, man, I don't know. I didn't know a whole lot about Elaine May until I saw this. And I was like, man, who the hell are you? What other movies did you do? And then why didn't you make more movies? (laughs) So (laughs) through the the background of this movie, it sounds like she really was at odds with studios often. But Mia, what did you think of the filmmaking of this? Is this also one of the things that draws you into Mikey and Nikki? I love the DIY feel of this movie. I mean, it, it has like this this punk vibe to it almost, you know, like the handheld camera movement. Um, I also just love her directing style of the actors themselves. I mean, I think that that is 
maybe my favorite thing about it is the chemistry between those actors that you could, it's just so palpable. You can, you can tell that they are buddies in real life too. Do you have a favorite scene? Well, I think, I feel like I have, I do have a couple, you know, we went over the motel scene, but the cemetery scene makes me crazy. (laughs) Oh my God. It is just written so, so well. And it has one of my favorite movie quotes ever, I think, um, is when it's by Nikki. Um, They're talking about their friendship and everything. Um, May I read? May I do a dramatic reading of this quote? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Nikki says to Mikey, I think that's the reason we're such good friends. Because Because we we remember remember each other other from when we were kids. kids. Things that happened when we were kids that no one else knows about but us. It's in our heads. That's how we know they really happened. God, I love that. I think it's just so... And then, of course, Mikey's like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't understand at all what you're saying. But um, I understood it perfectly, Nikki. You were clear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it it also makes sense of... Because by about this point at the cemetery, we... Um, more aware of what's happening and who knows what about whom. And so it's a real moment for them to uh, kind of rebond and for us to understand a bit more about their history together. And exactly, which yes. just sort of loads everything up with even more drama and tragedy, really. There's a letterbox review from, I think it's Chaim Kindergelt, who writes, Elaine May knows men better than men are willing to admit they don't. And it's rightfully telegraphed into a tragedy on all sides. Like, oh. there's a one-line review for you. That's a really good review. <laughs> Say My no favorite more. review for this movie comes from Catherine Kruger. Dudes rock, but at what cost? Oh. <laughs> so true. <laughs> it's so true. And actually, Jack pulled some amazing lists that this is on. And one of my favorites is guys being dudes, masculine melodrama. Which, of course, I'm like, okay, give me all the other films that are masculine melodrama. We've got Point Break. We've got The Furiouses. We've got Top Gun. We've got The Lusty Men. There's a lot of Westerns on there, of course. But I'm just like, I really, oh, Boys in the Hood, Bloodsport, mm, harking back to go. last week's episode. There, there you, you go. go. And, you know, as, as Slim pointed out last week, Bloodsport, the Jean-Claude Van Damme action film, ends with two guys telling each other they love each other. So I'm really on board oh. with masculine melodrama as a as a subgenre. Hook it to our veins. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on, did did either of you do this? Every time they showed the cinema marquee in the film and they had different movie names, I would Google those movie names and nothing would come up. Oh really? What? Hmm. Nothing would come up. Interesting. They were like, fake movies? Yeah. <laughs> And so now I want to know who thought up those movies. Like, was it the production designer, the art director, or was it Elaine having a laugh? Or She probably filmed that marquee for nine hours (laughs) straight. (laughs) And she was just like, just go up there with a bunch of letters and make up some names. I don't care how much it costs. Film it for the rest of the day. (laughs) Speaking of cities, let's move to New York City. One of your four picks... Mia, I saw in cinemas when it actually came out in 2003. And despite its divine cast and its brilliant setup, I wrote in my letterbox review this week on my first and only rewatch that I remember being so angry 
with this film at the time that I instantly forgot the plot and never watched it again until wow. this week. So let's get into it. This is <laughs> Mia's face is Uh-oh. like. Uh oh. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> so let's move to Peyton Reed's Down with Love in 1962, New York City. Love blossoms between Playboy journalist Catcher Block, played by Ewan McGregor, and feminist advice author Barbara Novak, played by Renee Zellweger. We also have David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson showing up as their respective, I think, closeted besties. And um, this is a three-point average on Letterboxd, so it sits right in my 3.4 to 3.6 sweet spot. Only 166 fans, of which you are one, but that's it. You know, 166 is a decent enough amount of people for a house party. So tell us about this one. (laughs) So this one I discovered during a Ewan McGregor phase I had that was very intense. What do you mean you had? Is it over? No, I know. I'm still in it. I'm (laughs) I'm sorry. There was just a brief period of time where I was like obsessed, obsessed and like going through all of his filmography. So that was how I discovered this. I was like, oh, he's in a rom-com, eh? Okay, I'll give this a watch. And then it became like one of my favorite movies. I gave it five stars right away. I just, I just really, I think part of it is everyone is hot. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Thank you, Hollywood. It's it's Yes, thank you for that. It's not always a bad thing. (laughs) No, not always a bad thing. Everyone's just hot and flirting. You know, it's like a sex comedy. It's, uh, you know, it's based off of the Doris Day, Rock Hudson sex comedies, um, specifically Pillow Talk. Um, I love that film. Yeah, Pillow Talk. So yeah, I just I just love that it's a romp. It makes me laugh the whole time. It's so colorful. The costumes, the script is so witty. It's written well. I love mm. a comedy that's written well. Those you know in this these modern times, it's a little bit hard to come by those um, in the mainstream yeah. at least. I know yeah. that. And that that sort of screwball nature, right? Yeah, the screwball comedy. I love the screwball rom com. Oh, how I love it. Yeah. We're in a severe screwball rom-com drought, I feel like. Really are, 100%. And, it had, and at that time, we had also been in one. I, I'd never even heard of this movie until this week, to be Whoa, totally honest. I, I, there might just be a, a blank spot for me watching Ewan McGregor movies that aren't Star Wars, now that I think about it. <laughs> so that Star Wars my... is what gave me the crush. It's because I watched that at a really young age. Phantom Star Menace Wars probably prequel. kicked wow. things off. Holy See, moly. Yeah, I was really little, and some it did something to me. What does it say? What does it say about the fact that my crush started when he played like a heroin junkie in a Scottish movie? <laughs> that's a topic for a different podcast, Gemma. I don't know if that's. I don't know if we have the time for this. Show. <laughs> Calling Mark Maron. <laughs> one of my first notes for this movie was, uh, Ewan McGregor's teeth are incredible. I don't know what kind of work he had put in there. If he had to go in like a can't like a cabin for six months while it all healed up, but he looks amazing. It's almost scary. He looks like a shark or something. <laughs> it's like he really does. He does. It's also like a he cleanse, does. a cleanse from last last week's episode when Slim made me watch Austin Powers all over again. <laughs> Both of these men have identical sex appeal. They are the same in my eyes. They're identical. I actually had a lot. I had a lot of fun with this. I had I had so much fun watching this. I was cracking up the whole time. And I actually like instantly understood why he got Ant-Man. Because like if I'm watching this movie and I'm Marvel, I'm like, who do we want to get for a quick-witted Marvel movie? You know, Peyton Reed could probably pull it off. Because this movie, it like doesn't stop. It's really funny. 
And it goes until like the very end. I had a fantastic time watching this. There, there are no down spots in it. It's amazing. No. So, mm-hmm. okay, I th- I'm going to try and unpack why I was so angry at the time that I managed to forget the entire <laughs> plot, which made this rewatch just so delightful when the twist came. And I was like, wait, what? I've seen this film before. I can't, I can't believe I didn't remember this. And I think it's two things. One is I was, this is what came out two years after Moulin Rouge. I was expecting a musical. And we do, in fact, get a song and dance number at the very end of the film. But that's a bit late if, if you've somehow been sold in the marketing that you're going into a musical and then you're sitting there drumming your fingers, getting more and more irate for the you know entire length of a feature film. So there was some confusion there. And secondly, I think it was just the idea that the kind of character that Catcher Block is could be redeemable. And I just didn't buy it at the time. And, you know, I'm a third wave, angry feminist, blah, 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 blah. And then watching it again now, it's like, oh, my God, the things I didn't know and understand about, for example, Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce and what a genius bit of casting that was. And the things I didn't understand, yeah, about about all the, all the things that were sort of built in to the plot and the casting and the production design to allow this this character to be able to be redeemed in the way that he is. I think that was it. So anyway, my review says that I'm no longer down with down with love. <laughs> yes, we got another one. We got another one. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and again, like, you know, spoilers, sorry, everybody. Um, but that twist is so important to that movie. Like that was when it's like solidified. This is one of my all-time favorites. I'm not going to storm out of here, catch. And I'm not going to admit that you got Barbara Novak to fall in love because I'm not Barbara Novak. There is no Barbara Novak. Huh? And I didn't fall in love with Sip Martin. I fell in love with Catcher Block. And that was a year ago when for three and a half weeks I worked as your secretary. Yeah. Also like one long take, one long shot. Yes, it's like so Gone Girl and then you're expecting (laughs) him to be like horrified. But then it goes phantom thread mode and he loves it. (laughs) He loves that she outsmarted him. Oh my God. (laughs) There's a letterbox list that I do want to call out that it's on. It's yours. Movies that made me say this is the greatest movie ever made. Yes, yes, yes. I actually just fired up the list. There's so, oh my God, 22 Jump Street. I think I might have said the same thing when I got that movie. I was like, this might be my favorite movie. (laughs) We'll have a link in the show notes, but there's so many great movies on this list. And it's true. I had to have said it organically um, for it to make it to that list. So there are some movies that I love that aren't on there because I just never said it. But (laughs) if I've said it, I'll put it there. (laughs) I love, I also love Callie Smith's list. My favorite of hate to love, the best trope. And uh, she's right. It's when Harry met Sally, it's Pride and Prejudice, it's uh, Bridget Jones's Diary, it's 10 Things I Hate About You. It's also Strictly Ballroom. You're like, what a beautiful, what a beautiful rom-com trope. And they pull it off. Mm. And they pull it off because they've both sort of, like he's definitely catfishing her. There's a, there's some switch, but then there's a whole other switcheroo, as you've mentioned, the feminist masterpiece writes doink de doink that this film turned out to be truly was not expecting that criminally underrated. This deserved to become a cult classic with over a hundred thousand watches on Letterboxd. How many watches does it currently have? We can get that up there after this. Yeah, let's episode. bump those numbers. We did it for Mikey and Nikki. Yeah, we've got sixty-three thousand to go. 
We'll get Easy. there, doink to doink. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get that done. Doink to doink. <laughs> Is Down With Love a good movie to watch while you're stoned? Yes. Um, <laughs> I have done that a lot of times. I believe every time I watched Down With Love. Uh, <laughs> 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 I like yeah. how that slowly turned into yes, you can yes. to eventually every time. Every yeah, time. Yes. to be honest, I've done it a lot and it's fun every time. I think it's because like the pacing is so quick and it's like colorful and it keeps your attention and yeah. And that musical number. Follow up question, follow up question. Is Smiley Face a good movie to watch when you are majorly baked? I would say it's a requirement. I would <laughs> almost say like, don't even bother if you're not going to smoke something before. <laughs> uh, smiley Face from 2007. Greg Araki, 3.4 average on Letterboxd, 208 fans. It's funny you say that it's a requirement because my wife and I were not when we watched it. And I think my wife left the room after about 20 minutes. She That'll do it. Back. Yeah. I understand not liking it if, if you're sober. That's oh, no. <laughs> I was fully, I, I know I had half a bottle of wine on me. I loved it. I was totally on board. Yeah. I was fully on board with the entire trip. I love Greg Araki. What do we need to know about Greg before we dive into Smiley Face? Because for a lot of people who, who love Greg Araki for films like Mysterious Skin, this is something quite different. So... So can you put Greg Araki in context before we dive into the synopsis of Smiley Face? Yes. I um, I quite like Greg Araki. I really, really... He did uh, that Teenage Apocalypse trilogy, um, and I like most of that. <laughs> I love Totally Fucked Up, um, and that's one that's kind of a hidden gem of his that I'd really... I really want to shout out Totally Fucked Up because I think it's like one of the most definitive LA coming-of-age movies. It's like... The French New Wave meets New Queer Cinema meets mm. um, like the it's, it's all handheld camcorder of the 90s. Like it's also very grungy. And um, I just think that movie's awesome. Not to not to put the focus on totally fucked up real quick, but it rocks. And then there's The Living End, which is just the classic be gay do crime film. Yes. He's so great at be gay do crime. Oh, my God. Um, oh, man. One of the best at it, as well as, you know, Elaine May, Mikey and Nikki. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, his his movies, oh man, we studied them a lot in in college actually and I'm so great. I have a funny story actually. That's I'll tell soon Ooh. about college and Smiley Face. But, okay. um, Similar to Mikey and Nikki, Smiley Face takes place over one calendar day and someone is trying to do a deal <laughs> in order to pay someone else back. Like they're the same film basically. No, they're not. But anyway, you've got Jane played by <laughs> Anna Faris. It opens, by the way, with Anna Ferris on a Ferris wheel. Lol. <laughs> Jane is a struggling but perpetually stoned actress. She has a busy day ahead. She has several important tasks on her list, including buying more marijuana to replace the weed that was in the cupcakes of her flatmates that he told her not to eat, but that she ate and now has to replace. And there's an yep. audition in there and she has to get across town to Venice Beach and... Yeah, there's a lot going on. When did this film first come into your life? Well, <laughs> in college, uh, we were actually assigned to watch this movie. It was mm. on our syllabus. <laughs> I don't know why. I decided to skip the class screening because I wanted to be high for the movie. Um <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to watch it stoned with a bunch of classmates. I'm going to watch it at home. So that's how I watched it. Um, and then as I was watching it, I realized I had somewhere 
to be like very soon. And I was so high. So then I started living smiley face. I was like, oh no, I have to get across (laughs) campus, but I don't. (laughs) And I was like so late to this thing. Oh God, it was awful. So that's my, (laughs) that's my little smiley face story. But um, yeah, so that's how I discovered it was for school. And then um, again, it was one of those love at first sight things where like from the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is hilarious. I'm laughing out loud so much. Anna Ferris is so funny, <laughs> unbelievably funny. She just nails it. Um, and then again, like some of the cast is really is really fun. There's a lot of just rant, like Adam Brody. Oh again, <laughs> let's bring up Adam Brody again, friend He's of back. the pod. Yeah. Let's talk about Adam playing a white guy with dreads. Yes. Weed dealer. Yes. Who, who Jane is very soon indebted to. <laughs> Not very long into the movie. Let's talk about the cast in general. Slim, what did you think? I was like, my eyes were boggling out of my head every time a new actor came on the screen. That This was one of those movies where I was like, why haven't I heard of this movie? Yeah. This feels like it would be one of those cult classics. It also, when you talk talk about your syllabus, this also feels like a film school or like movies 101 class. Like you get shown like weird movies that like (laughs) explain filmmaking or, you know, some kind of weird uh, grouping of films. This totally feels like one of those like indie 2000 movies. And the first Anna Faris movie I think I've ever seen is Scary Movie. One of the greatest (laughs) films ever made. If I made that list that Mia made, that would probably be on there. Um, But... I wrote in my notes that I can't think of any other movie with a female lead that's legit just her getting high and into trouble. Yeah. Like, is this the only movie that exists in that genre? Which is crazy to think about. And it's something I'm very interested in because I, that's something I dabble in. And uh, (laughs) my dad is going to hate listening to this. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a tag on Letterboxd. Girls with weed. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I use it every time there's a girl smoking weed. And, you know, I do get to use it more often than you would think, but it's never, it's never to this level, you right. know? Never, like, it's, it's always like a just feature like, film. No, it's just like some side girl characters, like smoking a joint or something. It's not like about her, just like chronically yeah. stoned. Just, yeah, there's not a lot like this. Not a lot. It's such a treat for the girls because you're like it's got mm-hmm. John Cho in it, who's Harold and Kumar, Go to the White Castle. Yes. Um, you think about Superbad, you know, all those types of films, which are just so hilarious and so funny, but so made for this sort of Im- imaginary, I don't know, real, but imaginary audience of dudes who like watching other dudes be stoned, and it's and it's just such a gift from Greg Araki to the audience that also exists that. Hollywood sort of likes to pretend doesn't and the fact that it takes place in LA and the fact that it intersects with the entertainment industry with the audition scene with um, the brilliant Jane Lynch which is such a wild wild audition scene are you all right I'm fantastic how are you I'm fine great hey one second what huh what did you just say something who me yes I'm sorry, I didn't realize I'd spoken. But it also had the feel of a cartoon. Like it feels like yes. a cartoon mm-hmm. movie brought to life. I don't know if it's because the version I was watching was a bit <laughs> jumpy or... <laughs> Gemma got a contact high just from watching the movie. <laughs> I want to say it's hard to track this movie down. This is one that's like, it's just the 
The DVD is like out of print. Mm-hmm. There's like yeah. no good physical media of it. It's it's hard to track this one down, which is frustrating. So Criterion, get on it. <laughs> this, would, this would be a big movie of the week on movie or something. Big, yeah. big feature. Oh, one of the reviews that cracked me up and it's so on point from Maggie. What if a girl got too high? That is <laughs> like literally encapsulates the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, her her back try, trying to back out oh, of the parking lot is one God. of the funniest scenes that it's I've seen this year. After so after trying to turn the car over when she's already turned it over, and we all know it's already turned over, <laughs> she's like, "Why is it not working?" Trying to back up, like the pillars are moving and everything, oh, man. and then, and then she eventually she just like crawls out of the car. That makes me laugh so much. <laughs> she just like gets on the ground, and just like starts crawling out the door. God, it's so funny. I just want to say, if you're an Anna Faris fan and you're a fan of um, getting a bit high and watching movies, I, I can highly recommend from 2010, Yogi Bear. The Oh, I've never heard of this. Oh, it is it is a live action animation hybrid. <laughs> uh, I have heard of this, yeah. actually. <laughs> With Justin Timberlake as Boo Boo Bear as the voice of. Uh, and Anna Faris is the main human character in the film, and it was shot oh. in my hometown, standing in for some American city. And it just wow. cracks me up every time I watch it because I'm like, oh my God, they're just running down that street where, like, behind Letterboxd HQ. That's really hilarious. Add it to the watch list. It's another, another yes. add to the watch list. Yeah. <laughs> did we go through the Letterboxd list for this movie? I don't think we did. I think we should. I think Yogi Bear should go on a list called movies to watch while stoned recommended by Gemma. I have one of my secrets here. I'll spill. I'm going to spill for a second. I do have a private letterbox list that is movies Excuse to watch me. while stoned. Whoa. I know. It's I know. Okay. I've been shy about it. Wow. It's, in, it's been in the works for years and years and years. I'm always adding to it for my own personal use. Well, like I'm happy to sit here and take a minute while you go and add Yogi Bear 2010. <laughs> I will add Yogi Bear. It's also list. organized. It's organized by like lightest comedy to like darkest weirdo creepy. It's put a, um, it's in the light comedy section. Okay, that's what yep. I'm thinking. That's yep. what I was assuming, but I didn't uh, okay, making sure. <laughs> Talking bears, weed, they yep. go really well together. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Why wouldn't Paddington. you? B movies for girls was one of the lists that we wanted to spotlight. Oh, yeah. Uh films about people who don't have their shit together. And I agree with this one. Comedies that are ahead of their time. I feel like this came out maybe a decade too too soon or something. Mm -hmm. If this had come out now, it'd probably be like a Hulu original and it would start like getting a groundswell of support. Like, oh, have you seen this smiley face, smiley face? It would be like opening night at South by Southwest. Could be. It would be a big, big deal. All of those stars on the red carpet. Oh boy. Should we move on to our final film? Of Mia's four favorites, Kill Bill Volume 1, 2003, oh, wow. Quentin Tarantino, 4.1 average, and this has 15,000 fans on Letterboxd. So that's one of our biggest ones, I feel like. Love the them all. Yeah. All 15,000 of them. That is, the, that is the Tarantino effect. I mean, on Letterboxd, there are, I mean, let's just name them, shall we? Tarantino, Nolan. Name them. Villeneuve, Scorsese. Who am I forgetting? Spielberg. There you go. I don't know. I'm not, mm, nah. That'd be interesting to rate. Uh, that would be interesting to see out of those directors who has the most uh, four favorited movies. Yeah, what about true. Kubrick? Yeah, true. Oh, yeah. They love yeah. him on there. <laughs> 
So <laughs> I want to start off by reading Kayla's letterbox review. There is no better way to unwind after a stressful workday than to watch Uma Thurman kick ass and kill everyone. Yep. It's so cathartic. I think it's just one of the most cathartic movies. <laughs> what was your first experience seeing this movie? Ooh, this was awesome. So I was uh, 16 years old, not high, I would like to add <laughs> for once. Uh, I was 16 years old using my dad's DVD Netflix account and uh, my life was changed forever. Like this was the movie that got me into movies and made me like fully realize like, wow, oh wow, movies can be like this. Are you kidding? Um, you know, I always, I always enjoyed films. Um, I always loved, you know, I went to the theater and I liked them quite a bit, but then this one like just solidified, like I'm very interested and passionate about this. And I like, I finished it immediately ordered volume two on DVD <laughs> Netflix. That cliffhanger is crazy. Uh, yeah. I can't even imagine like, of course I didn't see it when it came out. I was a little, a little one, but having to wait for volume two after that cliffhanger would have killed me. I remember seeing this in theaters yeah. and on this rewatch, I think I had the same experience you did. I mean, is this a perfect movie? Yes. Honest to God, there's nothing wrong with this movie, in my opinion. It's perfect. Perfect. It's, did you see it perfect. in cinemas, Slim? I did see it in cinemas. And what I was remember... it like? Because there were moments... I Okay, I'm going to be the one who's like, this was a first time watch for me this week. Oh. I know. Shock horror. Uh-oh. Weirdly filling the most appropriately Gemma gap in Tarantino's filmography. Uh, <laughs> only just... Now, and I have volume two yet to go. I'm imagining she kills Bill, but I don't know. And I'm excited to find Stay out. Tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. But um, I can imagine seeing this in cinemas, it would have been a really fun time. Everyone's, every time someone lost an arm or a head and, you know, yes. blood goes shooting into the sky. So so take us back there, Slim. What was it like in the cinemas? Before I tell you that, I get the vibe that Gemma didn't love this movie and it's shaking me to my core <laughs> before I give my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that the theater experience was incredible. Like seeing this opening night with friends and just like Mia says, like you feel like I've never seen a movie before until this moment. Like I've now been awakened to what film can be and I want only this. And that kind of sets the stage for as a young person on who Quentin Tarantino is. Like, is this the greatest director of all time? You know, like, <laughs> like I'm like two years, three years out of high school at this point. And then you start to like investigate and digging other directors that are maybe Quentin Tarantino homaged or also respect. So it like opens up these doors at this point in your life where like, wow, I've never experienced film like this before. I have to say that I sat there watching Kill Bill Volume 1 with the New York Times Maureen Dowd article that she did with Uma Thurman open and was scrolling while watching because it's really hard to now watch that film for the very first time in isolation from the realities that were going on behind mm -hmm. the scenes for Uma Thurman, not only with Tarantino putting her in that goddamn car, but also with Weinstein producing. So I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm the feminist buzzkill coming in from the side to go, yeah, it was amazingly fun to watch all those people kicking all that ass and but. No, I mean, that's something that I agree with and it's something that I uh, grapple with a lot. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously when I watched it the first time, I 
no idea about any of that. But if I were you and knew <laughs> that while watching, yeah. oh yeah, that would absolutely color my experience. Um, I was I was actually just gifted a, Gil, a Kill Bill poster from my work that I just left and I made them put a little sticker over Har- Harvey Weinstein's name. I didn't want to look at it. I was like, oh, that was just gross. So yeah. I mean, it's really hard for us, isn't it? Because it's hard. Know, like, I mean, it's- everyone knows I'm a Campion fan. It was Weinstein yeah. who ran that campaign to get her, 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 you know, the first woman to win a palm door for directing, whatever, for the piano. It's it's there's there's a lot of problematic faves in in the in the art yes. of film loving. But I will say this, that final fight that looks like they're in a snow globe, holy freaking heck, that is one of the most beautiful things my eyeballs have ever seen in a movie. Yes. No, I love, I love the last sequence where it goes from like the crazy 88 scene, which is just like so much action at once. (laughs) And then it just kind of like slows down and gets a little bit more meditative during this like actual final fight. Yeah. Oh God. And it looks so gorgeous. That was like my desktop wallpaper for a long time. It was like a still from that snow, that snow fight. Yeah, you referenced the article, Gemma. I'd almost forgotten because when that had come out and maybe folks have not read the article, but Uma talked about that stunt that she really didn't want to do in the mm. car mm. and the fallout of filming, how their friendship really just disintegrated mm. over the years. It almost feels like an eternity ago that article came out, but it wasn't even that long ago. No, it, it wasn't. Was it? I feel like if I look back, it's probably like two years ago. So that, it feels yeah. like a decade ago that it had come out. And that also, like their falling out is such a bummer too because they put these movies together and then their friendship through Quentin Tarantino's decisions, mm. they just went, they fell through. You know, what could have been with the two of them over the years? Because he's made other movies where Uma could have really, you know, benefited from right. being in those films. And then you look at her filmography yeah. from like the last 10 years and it's just kind of, I mean, she's probably got other stuff going on maybe or, or and, you know, no one can put words into Uma's mouth, but, um, you know, there's, she's clearly had a lot of trauma in her professional life. Yeah. that she is now having to come to terms with. And she talks in that article about it being so complicated for her because, um, yes, she was attacked by the evil we will not name uh, several times in several hotel rooms, but she also didn't tell anyone. And so then more women went on to be his victims. So that's a really complicated feeling for someone who's an early victim of someone so powerful and so famous and on and upon whose approval your entire career rests. And yeah, and then you've got Quentin going around telling, you know, no less than Barack Obama that she's his muse and that she's the reason that he gets to do anything at all. So mm. it's, I find it, there's the whole, can you separate the art from the artist thing? And I, I, I find that really tricky on the best right. of days. I do too. She was like, this is like the modern day Ellen Ripley. Oh. Uh, like character yeah right like this is the coolest action star that i can think of in the last like 20 years and i just i love when she gets to be like that whole scene in the sushi restaurant that turns out to be the you know up in the attica the beautiful samurai swords that entire scene that whole sequence how it plays out i love her in that because we Mm -hmm. like from the opening we see her just bloodied and beaten and then she goes through even more horrendous trauma and then to flounce in in this cute little white t-shirt and suddenly be fluent in Japanese and she's got this 
beaming smile and it's all part of the game. She's such a great actress. She's Her performance is off the chain in this. The character that actually means the most to me, though, is not is not even the bride. Um, Oren Ishii. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Is, wow. She is just like one of my all-time most like influential characters ever. I mean, that was just... It was huge watching her when I was 16 because I am, I'm Asian, half Asian, and um, they're just, you know, honestly, I did not feel super represented in media, but I didn't have the language for it at the time. Um, I didn't fully even realize it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I watched this movie and like I see her and she's just so badass. She looks so amazing. Her character actually has interesting dimensions. Like I love her whole chapter where we get to learn more about her, that whole sequence where we get so much backstory about her. I love that she's not just like a one-dimensional villain, you know, Um, like the scene, oh my God, where she cuts that guy's head off and she's like, the price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing god that was yeah that was life-changing when she said that um so she just she just means a lot to me yeah i wish there were more like her in (laughs) mainstream mainstream american film i i can say that coming up soon from a24 there's a movie called everything everywhere all at once and michelle yo is in it and I'm getting the feeling we're going to be very satisfied. Yes, I'm excited for that one. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Kill Bill Volume 2? Because when I was younger and Kill Bill Volume 2 came out, I incorrectly thought that we were getting the same thing as Volume 1, like the most insane action I've ever seen. But the action, I think this is even in a review, maybe this is a friend of Jack's who wrote this review that I'm referencing. In Volume 1, the action is the dialogue. But in Volume 2... The dialogue is the action. Uh, so let's see. I watched volume two uh, as soon as it arrived in the mail because <laughs> I ordered it off DVD Netflix. Um, and yes, it's very, it's very different. It was also not what I was expecting because yes, it's very, it's more grounded. I don't want to say it is grounded because you know it's still right, still a little <laughs> ridiculous. That's just Quentin. Um, but we learn more about the character and what's. What's weird is that usually I prefer dialogue and character stuff to action um, and plot, but I prefer the first one here, which is <laughs> maybe it's just because Oren is in the first yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, to be honest, that could be it. Um, but I think volume two is great in just a, in a much different way. Still ties it up nicely. Just, yeah, very different and still, still great. And you're... Letterbox profile, the other thing you've written is a huge proponent of She Did That cinema. Yes. <laughs> this you, is the one. Yeah, this is the one? Is this the root of She Did That cinema? Um, oh, no. I think that the if I'm not, I know my Letterboxd history, and I believe that uh, She Did That originated from Gone Girl. Ah. Uh, um, mm. Yes. Gone Girl is kind of the blueprint. Um, <laughs> but I guess Kill Bill came out before, uh, I don't know. It, there's a long rich history of she's doing that in the cinema. <laughs> but Gone Girl propelled it to the mainstream, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is 
this is a big one in the canon. I love yeah. when she's do that. What <laughs> What are some latest, uh, more recent when she's do that's that you have loved that Ooh, you'd highly recommend? That's a good one. Really testing your knowledge of your own letterbox now, aren't we? <laughs> Kimmy. Ah. Oh. I guess she does do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, does that, and does if if she does that, is it best if she also survives? It is best. It is mm. best. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean. So much code being talked about right now with this letterbox <laughs> list. Everyone's <laughs> scanning this letterbox list, squinting, trying to figure <laughs> things out. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. I do think it's best. I do think it's best when she survives, but I also think she can do that and move on. Like, um, yeah. Tatan, I think it's okay. I yeah, think Tatan right? does it well. Um, I think that that's, a, that's an instance where it's done well. And then promising young woman. Mm, <laughs> Not okay. as much. <laughs> Next question. And, and, then yeah, a, let's and, then, <laughs> and then a follow-up question for Slim. Because there is, she did that cinema. And then there is the good for her cinematic universe, which are slightly different, right? Good for her, I feel, again, originated. <laughs> Not originated, <laughs> but became popular through uh midsomar oh right uh, i remember seeing i feel like i've seen a lot of people say that like that's a good for her yeah um which yeah it's different because the florence Pugh character she's not really doing that she's just kind of crying <laughs> a lot of it is her which is cool that's cool i'm not being a hater like <laughs> um i think i think even just saying there's gone girl and there's midsomar uh, yes, and that's enough to sort of understand what the the, the slightly different, I guess, motivations and story arcs are. So, my follow up question for you, Slim, is: Uh-oh. What is the boys' equivalent of this in our modern day and age? Is it ma- masculine melodrama, or is there? I mean, gestures to Sylvester Stallone's filmography, <laughs> or Jean Claude Van Damme, or <laughs> a host of any other. Ripped men from 1980 and on. I mean, you could also say like the 70s, like crime cop dramas are like all of that. I mean, unfortunately, the majority of male-led cinema is probably on these lists. I would (laughs) say, yeah, like most movies. (laughs) (laughs) Most movies movies. released after 1910. Yeah, they get to do that. They often just do that. Another thing is like when the girlies get to do that. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, they're just like so sexualized and like the things that they get to do, it's just, you can tell it's just, you know, the guy director getting off. Um, right. So it just kind of rings hollow. And it's like, yeah, I guess it's technically she did that. I guess she, she did do it, <laughs> but she was like naked the whole time for not even a cool reason. <laughs> <laughs> So we have the weekend watch list is kicking out. Your first episode will be this week as of this episode posting. And we're going to be talking about new movies coming out, uh, what we're adding to our watch list, trending movies. So off the top of your head, we didn't prep for this, but what are some of the movies coming out this year that you're dying to see? What would be like the top of your watch list that maybe we'll have a chance to talk about this year together? The Northman. <gasps> Oof, yeah. That was fast. That was very fast. It yeah, I've been thinking about the Northman <laughs> for years. Um, I I just really like uh, Robert Eggers. Um, really liked The Witch. Loved The Lighthouse. Uh, <laughs> really loved The Lighthouse quite a bit. Uh, not just for Rob, although that's a big reason. 
I just think that he's a great director who's doing very original, interesting work. And um, I'm excited to see Bjork. <laughs> I'm excited to see Bjork's Bjork. But also, can I yeah. just say, Team Nicole, you're bringing it. Yes. You're bringing it for Team Nicole. Yes, Team <laughs> Slim, Nicole. Slim, does your boy Tom have anything coming out this year? I mean, are we finally <laughs> getting the top gun? Tom, Tom Cruise, who is the Tom we're referencing. <laughs> The first time we mentioned him on this season. He's got like three movies that have been the can for four years, I feel like. Top Gun is supposed to come out like a decade ago. And the rest of us have just been getting Nicole, Nicole, Nicole. Like Nicole's she had been, nine movies come out. She hasn't been on our screens, plus she's the AMC girl. So, you know. The amount of yeah. AMC memes I see in the discords that I'm in is <laughs> off the charts. The one thing, pulling back to Robert Eggers, maybe for the last thing we'll mention this show, is this the first Eggers new movie post- pandemic letterbox because there's so many things that exploded on letterbox during the pandemic yeah you know like in the moment movies this could be like the biggest letterboxed release i feel like in the last couple of years Oof. right it eggers really new could. eggers and the thing is i saw the lighthouse at tiff toronto international film festival 2019 red carpet in the midnight section so i was you know there when Robert Patterson walked past and Willem Dafoe. You saw a, him? Yeah, yeah, I saw him. I was within arm's reach. He's His red carpet game is brilliant. He just, he comes on and does whatever it is his rep says he has to. And then he makes a beeline straight for the fans who have been queuing on the other side of the red carpet all day. And he gives them time and he gives them selfies and then he goes in and does the movie. He is, yeah, like Pro. not everyone is like that. Obviously he has learned the game very well through his years in the Twilight universe. But he is very, very good at that stuff. But it was small, you know. It was still an intimate red carpet in spite of the fact that the vampire, Sparkly Vampire, was there. So this <laughs> is going to be a big deal for that whole crew this time round. Big deal. What is is this theatrical or is this hitting a, a service? Surely it's theatrical. Come it on. better be. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, don't yell. Both of you don't hey, yell. Hey, at we're me, gonna please. yell at you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be like an Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus oh, release oh or something. Oh my god, can you imagine? So it's slated oh. for April. I mean, this is only a month away. My this God, it's close. Mm -hmm. it's, I know, it's, I've been waiting. It's day and date around the world, exclusively in theaters, April twenty-two. This is, yeah, this might be the first big day and date worldwide cinema Sheesh. situation. I know which, I know which week uh, Mia signed up for, for the weekend watch list. <laughs> She'll crash that episode no yeah. matter what to talk about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I already put dibs on Paddington 3, so you can't have that one. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Letterbox Show. It's good to be back, Gemma. Back in the swing of things two weeks in a row. Ah, so good. Cannot wait for next week for more films I've probably <laughs> never seen <laughs> before. Day before, Gemma watching four movies back to back to back to back <laughs> right before recording. Don't forget to dial up our new podcast, Weekend Watch List, In Your Ears Weekly with me, Mitchell, Mia, and occasionally Gemma. You can follow myself, Gemma and our guest Mia Vicino and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks always and as ever to our crew, Composing Dynamo's Monica for the theme music, Vampiros Danzotech. Uh, if you're new to the Letterboxd show, just a small fun fact, that is an outtake song from the mockumentary What We Did in the Shadows. 
How Unreal. cool is that? Unreal. Thanks also to Jack for the facts, to our booker, Linda Moulton, for looking after all our guests, and to Sophie Shin for the episode transcript and for coping with my New Zealand accent. And thanks to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production and there is no Barbara Novak. Cigarette? You're not supposed to smoke on these things. You gonna stop me, this guy here? Hey, take it easy. Here's a cigarette. Just one bus driver. Save yourself for a crowd. Excuse me. No smoking in the bus. Hey, shut up, will you? I'm gonna tell the bus driver. I'm gonna tell your mother. This, this, this is a tape deck podcast.